Hi, Teamsters. I'm Carrie Ann. And I'm Allison. And this is Podcast Without an Audience, where two friends pick two topics and find intersectionality. Or not. <laughs> um, so far, I think the intersectionality piece has been my favorite yeah. part of this. Yes. <laughs> We're trying something new today. We are. We're going to be uh, more organized, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, it's only taken us how many episodes mm-hmm. to get here? Six or seven? It's unclear at this time. Um, we are going to be drawing the Venn diagrams. I will have already included my portion. You will maybe have already included yours. And then we're going to be keeping track of how things intersect. Yeah. So that we can give a more comprehensive, possibly, something uh, intersectionality portion. Analysis. Though I do hope that, um, you will appreciate all the work that went into doing this just in our heads. Mm -hmm. Only now have we decided that we need to actually write shit down. Well, I've also had people recently be like, oh, your cover art, it's a Venn diagram. (laughs) (laughs) Thank Uh, you. Shout out to actual angel, Ashley Acevedo. That's right. Um... And Zach Smith, too, who helped come up with that, that concept. Oh, yep. Yep. Oh. We've got good people helping we've us. Good, we've got a good team. We do. I love everybody. Um, Me, too. So what's going on? How are you? I am great. I love being here with you and your new little puppy. Oh, He's finally asleep. God, it's like having a tiny, hairy baby. <laughs> a little infant, if you will. They're, so French bulldogs make such unique noises. Um, I'm wondering if the mic's going to pick up any of them, but we are recording in um, my bedroom today, hoping that we can get some better sound quality um, yeah. with all of the fabric. And he's on his little bed. He's got his Yoda <laughs> toy. And hopefully he will stay asleep. Very Star Wars. Very Star Wars. Obi-Wan Kenobi, you our only hope. <laughs> um, but he's so cute. And um, I just want to pick him up and squeeze him I like know. so hard. And you said something super relatable a minute ago. Yeah. What did you say? <laughs> um, I want to squeeze him till he cries. And then I want to hold him <laughs> and make him feel better. I love that this is like an actual studied psychological phenomenon where people like, just mean? want to bite. Like, have you ever had the feeling of like just wanting to squeeze someone so hard or mm-hmm. bite someone? The it's biting? Because you love them the so biting. much. The biting. Yeah. I can. I know exactly what you mean with the biting. Yeah. Like if for um, the cat people, mm-hmm. the ear nibble is, so is, cute. is, is a thing. <laughs> People uh, who don't have cats are probably like, mm, but it's probably the same. Do you ever get the urge to like bite the paw? Like not bite, but like, have you seen Leo's <laughs> toe beans? He has the cutest little feet. Yes. Of any creature I've ever seen. Toe beans. Toe beans. <laughs> yes. I love that. That's so that's an actual like, it's an actual psychological phenomenon and they don't really know why people do it other than like. You just have all of these happy chemicals so like much floating love. around in your brain. And your brain's like, we have to get rid of them somehow. Mm-hmm. Bite. My mom says, I love you so much, like a big stack of pancakes. Mm-hmm. And she also says, like, I love you. Like, my heart is overflowing. It's just, like, sloshing over. <laughs> so those are, like, yeah, I, I, I definitely love you. A great those. big stack. Big stack. That's cute. cute. I know. I love that. I know. I say it all the time. When we were growing up, my 
um, my mom would like hold our hands in the car or something and she would squeeze us really hard three times. Oh, and then we would squeeze her back twice and then she would squeeze us back really hard one time and shake. And the three was, I love you. And the two was how much. And then the last Aww. squeeze was how much she loved us. Well, that's adorable. I know we're pretty stinking How wholesome cute. are you guys? <laughs> we still do this sometimes too. We did a walkie walkie skip. Where, like, my mom and dad would hold our arms and then swing us up. Aww. That was the thing. And then they'd time us, quote unquote, time us running around the house. Yeah. I see you, mom and dad. <laughs> I know you are not timing us. <laughs> they were counting, if at best. Yeah. Well, my sister um, is pregnant. And I FaceTimed with her the other day. Mm-hmm. And literally, so my parents are down there. And I was like, show me, like... Show me your belly and what so do you she, look like? Yeah, like what's going on? And and um she she had a dress on and she like brought the the fabric like close to her uh-huh. and I could see her little baby bump and I just started crying. I was like, Oh my god, I love you so much. She's just growing a human. She could do nothing all that. day and still be more productive than any of us. <laughs> Today she's working on an eyeball. Tomorrow it'll be a foot. Exactly. <laughs> it's kind of like a puzzle yeah. situation, I'm pretty sure. Yep. Um, you got your Venn diagram ready, girl? You ready to... I'm getting there. This week, I am covering the history of mental health and the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, or the DSM. Oh, the DSM. Are you familiar? The it's... Dinosaur Sub... Marinara, right? Correct. Yes. Perfect. Dino Nuggies. (laughs) Um, So in our very first episode, we talked about the history of mania, which, Mm -hmm. I mean, we called it the wandering womb because that's really Mm -hmm. where it originated in ancient Greece. Ultimately, it was the the history of mania. So um, we're going to jump ahead to last year and the 2020 census. Do you remember oh. completing? Did you complete the census? Yes, I did. did. They knocked on my door. And... Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Everybody was super, which is good. It's it's an obligation we all must do and it helps. Yeah. I, it helps with like funding and, you know, figuring out needs, except that it's so flawed um, and it changes every year. Um, I know that, um, so we just completed the 2020 census and I remember there being a lot of discussion about what questions should be included. Mm -hmm. Specifically, I know that there were issues brought up around race and ethnicity for at least the past couple of censuses. And then this time they really talked about gender identity and sexual orientation, like what questions Mm -hmm. to ask, how do you, Mm -hmm. you know, navigate finding information on that. Mm. I think in the 2010 census, I remember there being a question about sexual orientation. I could be wrong. Is it in relation to marital status or? Maybe. I don't actually remember. However, in 1840, the big question was, quote, how many people in your family are deaf, dumb, blind, idiots, or insane? (gasps) Oh, no. Yep. It's the first year that they asked about disability and mental health. Mm -hmm. Um, And there were no definitions assigned to these terms. Right. Like, they were just like, uh... Could you self-disclose? Sure. Is And, of course, men were the people answering these questions. Like, it was head of household answering mm-hmm. the questions. So, insane could refer to, like, any unusual behavior. Um, idiotic could be, like, a learning disability or anything else. It was super vague and probably done that way on purpose. Um, I hate that. I know. Me, too. Oh, so I really hate that. What I'm imagining is, like, a... 
smart-ass cis man making a joke about everyone in his family being an idiot or insane. Right, Because right. you know, like, so people are out there who say shit thought, like that. My thought goes to, like, was it well-intentioned asking these questions, or was it that they were just problematic? That's a great question. The intent was to figure out where money needed to go to build asylums mm. and oh, mental health services. Rah. And we'll talk about that in just yeah, a second. But it was super, super it. problematic. There was also another hidden reason, okay. which we'll get to in just a second as well. Just a quick preface. Obviously, we don't use this language anymore around mental health or disabilities. But mm-hmm. the rationale was that the government was interested in creating systems to benefit people with disabilities. Okay. For about 100 years after the census, there was a period of asylum building um like i'm thinking american horror story asylum like lock up the lesbians you definitely hear a lot about them from a certain time period yeah yeah and did you ever read one flew over the cuckoo's nest um no i never did or see the movie yeah, with uh, the movie. jack nicholson mm-hmm. um such a good movie and i yeah. love the idea that like the person who was in the institution was actually sane while everyone around him mm-hmm. was not yeah my like from like a cinematic perspective i think of shutter island right in yeah. the the thought process of um the doctors and nurses being uh, really adamant about uh, helping um these patients instead yeah. of you know which was kind of a revolutionary concept it was and from what i read like a lot of these asylums weren't actually horrible places i mean Many of them certainly were Mm -hmm. like they were not looking at people holistically or trying to actually help them get better. It was a way to institutionalize them and get people out of society. But in some of them, like there were positive outcomes, like people really genuinely wanted to help people heal. Probably depends on too how much you can afford because the, you know, the more money you spend, the better care. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But we'll talk more about asylums because I think I want to do like a special topic on just asylums. So stay tuned because it's a fascinating topic. The census essentially would demonstrate a need for institutionalized care. Mm -hmm. And that was the idea. Um, Later in like the 1900s, it was less about helping people and more about preventing them from reproducing. Oh, wow. So small aside here, and we'll come back to this too, but eugenics was really popular in the early 20th century. Mm -hmm. Um, and forced sterilization continued all the way up into the 1980s yeah. in the U.S. Um, uh, and I just can't do eugenics justice on top of the history of mental health in the DSM. Yeah. So the, these are all going to have to be separate mm-hmm. subjects. However, I can't not mention it sure. in this episode. What I do want to say is there are still active systems of oppression in the U.S. that are structured to prevent disabled people from marrying. For example, a disabled person who's receiving SSI, um, not to be confused with SSDI, cannot have more than $2,000 in assets in their bank account and still receive services and support through Hmm. SSI. If they're married, that number is only $3,000. So regardless of if the person they're marrying is disabled or not, they cannot have more than $3,000 in their bank account. No savings. They can have a house and one car. Wow. And that is all that they are allowed, according to SSI. To qualify. Yeah. Yeah. And if you, at any point, make more than that, you're removed from SSI. And then it's like a two to six month period before you can get it back. So SSI is supplemental security income. 
and SSDI is Social Security Disability Insurance. So that's the the difference between the two. Gotcha. One is a supplemental money that's coming in each month to help you meet your basic needs, and the other one is Social Security mm-hmm. um, for disability. Mm-hmm. So both work with people who are disabled. So but it's just one way that people are continuing to police disabled bodies and not allow them to you know, accrue any kind of wealth or status or anything because in order to receive some services and benefits, you have to be eligible for supplemental security income. It basically means that disabled people are forced to stay in poverty. We also can't have this discussion without talking about race. So history.com says, in particular, the 1840 census was shown to have severely overcounted the number of free black people Mm. who were insane or idiots. Oh, as reported. Wow. Mm, okay. This is data that supporters of slavery may have used as propaganda to argue that black Americans were not able sure. to handle freedom. Oh, my God. I, I hate the way that that's worded. Oh. Like, I hate that this is part of our history mm-hmm. and that no one talks about it. Yeah. Because, I mean, there's still so much stigma, especially in black and brown communities, around mental health mm-hmm. and mental health services. And it's because things like this have been used against them. Sure. You know, since even before the 1840s. Right. So this is interesting to me. And our first little graphic that we put out for the show, yours said, don't make me repeat myself. Mm -hmm. You remember your bust and, Uh um, which I love because it's sassy and cute, but also Mm -hmm. history is constantly repeating itself. And that's the way that black and brown and disabled Americans are still treated in the U.S. Mm -hmm. Like they're still treated as though you have mental health issues or not. Um, but we are going to discriminate against you based on the assumption that you can't handle X, Y, and Z. Mm -hmm. A lot of assuming. Yeah. Um, We can directly trace overcounting free black people and mental health to later diagnosing them as incompetent. Um, We can trace it to mass incarceration because of our system of support that was built directly on the fallacy that black Americans are unable to handle freedom and that disabled Americans don't deserve the right to access, support, resources, and marriage or a family. Uh, Like, this just goes so deep. Wow. Yes, it does. Yeah. So this census, about 17 million people were counted. Mm -hmm. And this sounds like a small number, um, but 17,456 were listed as insane or idiots. However, experts have said that because of the overreporting in black communities and black and brown communities and underreporting in white communities, this is actually worthless data. Sure. And it's super objective and objectifying. Right. So it means nothing. You know, it reminds me of when you're going to do a case study. You have to yeah. make sure that you're the the population that you're that's involved in the study is diverse with in many aspects. So right. yeah. That makes a lot of sense. That's Now, there are some mixed accounts of what happens next. So we've got another census, another few censuses coming up. And at this point, were they doing them every 10 years? Yeah. So according to psychiatry.org, by the 1880 census, seven categories of mental health were distinguished. Okay. Mania, melancholia, monomania, paresis, dementia, dipsomania, and epilepsy. However, according to history.com, Uh, In 1980, it states that the words were just, is someone in your household defective of mind? In 1880 or 1980? 1880. Okay. So 1880 was, there may have been seven categories. Mm -hmm. In 1890, the words defective of mind were beginning to be used. Gotcha. Okay. 
Um, and I actually looked this up to see what the censuses said, and they're just so problematic. Yeah. Um, but instead of reading them to you, I'm going to post them in our pictures for the notes gotcha. for this week because they're oh, worded differently based on your race, too. They were what? They were worded differently based on your race. Oh, my God. I know. Oh, I hate this. I hate it so much. They also used words like crippled, maimed, and deformed oh. as options to categorize people in your home. What was the, um, did you notice any language around gender? Um, it was just male or female. Okay. Yeah. Um, the male or the head of household was almost always male. And then you had mm-hmm. to click male or female or check male or female, um, often put names and then like how old they were when the census was taken. And do you know anything about the distribution of the census, about how it was actually? It was done door to door. Door to door. Kind of like they did for you in 2020 because you didn't do it online. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I was busy having a mental breakdown. <laughs> we all were. No, it's so funny. When the 2020 census came out, I was I'm staying in Pittsburgh. And oh, my God. I'm, oh, yeah. Like I'm when so I completed it. So, um, but my apartment was technically still greensboro Mm -hmm. i think my mom like counted me in pittsburgh even though i didn't live there Mm -hmm. so there may be two of me for this year or for these 10 years voter fraud ca (laughs) um and for anyone who's listening that's totally false (laughs) we're not being recorded right now (laughs) oh something else that's really interesting to note is in the 19 or i'm sorry 1890 census um there was a question about whether a person was a prisoner convict homeless child or pauper as part of your family a pauper yeah huh also homeless child like well homeless adults homeless people no no. homeless child child or pauper so pauper is the of age version of the homeless child (laughs) i guess okay uh again no definitions were given it's just not and it's also not people experiencing homelessness right right gotcha yeah Okay, so back to the DSM, uh, because that's actually our topic, not all the <laughs> shitty things that the census was Not how shitty done. the census was. But the census ties directly into the DSM. So we're pre-World War II. Mm-hmm. In 1917, the American Medico-Psychological Association, which is later the um, APA, the American Psychological Association, And the National Commission on Mental Hygiene was developed, um, and they made a plan to bring these statistics from mental hospitals rather than through the census, which is why we don't have questions about mental health on the census today. It's because these two organizations were developed, and they were like, gathering this information through the census and people Mm self-reporting isn't accurate. We need real data. Actual data. So they started going to um, mental hospitals to get that information. Mm. Which, I imagine that the healthcare industry has a much better record keeping system. I mean, theoretically, but like there was also this practice of just declaring people insane or incompetent. Or or the opposite too. I mean Or yeah, like you know absolutely you can't necessarily count on everyone to to be honest or to and have, undiagnosed. Yeah. There's there's a lot of things that are going yeah. undiagnosed. So Oh absolutely. I understand your point. Yeah. It later developed a nationally acceptable psychiatric classification that would be incorporated with the first edition of the American Medical Association Standard Classification Nomenclature of Disease, which is a long-ass name. We got an Um, acronym? 
We do not. Oh. There, there is no acronym. <laughs> gotta say the whole thing. Just gotta know it. Um, and this was used for diagnosing patients with severe psychiatric and neurological disorders. So it's okay. like the precursor to the DSM. Right. Got it. Essentially what happened is we just kind of went out and started counting people to get money to fund hospitals. And then the hospital started self-reporting data and statistics. Mm -hmm. And then the APA stepped up and created a standard for diagnosing. And I see no problems here. What could possibly go wrong? Sure. Like, that's There's a, a lot great of cooks in the system. kitchen. Yeah. <laughs> so World War II happened, and then the U.S. Army gets involved. And they decide that they need a broader classification system so that they could support servicemen and veterans, which I guess is like a positive outcome of sure. World War II. I, this is after World War II. Yeah. Okay. So this is like the 1940s and early 50s. Okay. So by this point. And right after. Yeah. Uh, so by this point, the World Health Organization was already on it and had published their sixth edition of the ICD. And the ICD stands for the International Statistical Classification of Diseases and Related Health Problems. So it was not just for mental health issues. It was really for like this whole spectrum of stuff. But in like the 1950s, they'd published their sixth ICD. Uh, we're currently on ICD-11. Oh, okay. Yep, just in case you want to go look it up. The sixth edition was the first time that it had a section for mental disorders and included 10 categories of psychoses, psychoneuroses, and seven categories for disorders of character, behavior, and intelligence. Now, America is certainly not about to be outdone by the World Health Organization, so the APA committee was developed and started to write the first DSM. Okay. Um, in 1952, it came out, and the DSM, um, again, is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, and it was basically, at that point, a glossary of diagnostic categories, like a dictionary. Mm -hmm. um, the second edition was published in 1968 and was super similar. Jumping ahead, the DSM-3 was uh, published in 1980, and there were a number of changes, including explicit diagnostic criteria. So this is the first time that we have not just like a dictionary that we can go to and say what is bipolar disorder, mm -hmm. but an actual tool that we can use to diagnose somebody. Sure. The DSM-3 also created five axes to talk about people. And the idea was that this would be a really holistic way of looking at humans who had things going on. Okay. So access one was a clinical syndrome. Axis 2 was a lifelong disorder or handicap. Axis 3 was a physical condition. Axis 4 was the severity of the psychological stressors. And Axis 5 was your highest level of social and occupational functioning in the past year. Hmm. So it was a quick like read-through of the top five things that could be going wrong if you're having a mental or physical issue. Okay. Um, and by and large, this actually may have been a good thing. There was a decrease in, in diagnoses, especially in accurate diagnosing, mm -hmm. and it was more unified and provided an opportunity to communicate more clearly. Yeah. So overall- They like, had a reference. Yeah. It was not yeah. the worst thing. The DSM-3R, or 3 revised, mm -hmm. and the dsm 4 the DSM-R came out like just seven years after the first dsm 3 and there were no fundamental changes, but pretty substantial minor ones. Like sleep disorders were expanded, some categories were dropped, others were added, and there was a slight change to the access system, which I actually really appreciate and was used until 
like 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. And even now, like if I'm working with older mental health workers or social workers, they still reference these axes. You know, it reminds me of um, an episode three when we talk about um, the chakras and preventable tragedies and just kind of like revisiting topics, which is like extremely healthy to be monitoring and and always evolving and changing. Um, So access one at this point is now clinical disorders like substance use. Uh, This is where gender and sexual identity disorders is still like very present in the as a mental health issue. Oh, God. Yeah. That is so disappointing. Yeah. Me too. Like, I mean, gender dysphoria is still in the DSM-5. Is it? This is an actual thing that people experience. It's not something that this person just made up. So for me, that sounds like it's in a negative light. Mm. So that's where I have that, an issue with that. Maybe you can touch more on that. Sure. I think what's really interesting about it is like um, inherently – Gender identity and sexual orientation are not negative. Like, we know that, you know, you can be trans, non-binary, lesbian, queer, gay, whatever, Mm -hmm. and that doesn't diminish your quality of life. Right. Something that might diminish your quality of life is having gender dysphoria and not being able to seek treatment for it. Okay. I see what you're saying. I guess my my point... I, I think I might have an issue with it being a diagnosis as opposed to somebody just being trans. Well, and I from th- a point of of the stigma of you're being diagnosed, something is wrong with you. So the term transgender refers to a person whose sex assigned at birth does not match their gender identity. Mm-hmm. Right. We know all that. Some people who are transgender will experience gender dysphoria which refers to a psychological distress that results from an incongruence between one's sex assigned at birth and one's gender identity. Though gender dysphoria often begins in childhood, some people may not experience it until puberty or even much later. But not all people experience gender dysphoria. So people who are trans may pursue multiple domains of gender affirmation, including social affirmation, legal affirmation, Um, medical affirmation, and or surgical affirmation. Of note, not all people who are trans will desire all domains of gender affirmation. These are highly personal and Mm -hmm. individual decisions. And this is directly from psychiatry.org. But it's super important to just note that gender identity is also different from gender expression. Mm -hmm. And gender identity is what's going on in your brain and mm-hmm. expression is what's going on outside of your body, mm-hmm. like what you put on your body. Mm-hmm. Um, so you could have like a feminine gender expression or more masculine, like historically masculine. Uh, I talked about Eddie Izzard and um, he, uh, from what I know, uses he, him pronouns. And um, he has a quote that says, it's like, people ask me why I'm wearing women's clothes and he says, they're not women's, they're mine. I buy them. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. And because, I mean, I hate that clothing is gendered as it is, but one of the benefits to having this in the DSM five is often trans people may pursue therapy options. Mm -hmm. And if they don't have a coexisting mental health issue, then it's hard to get insurances to cover it. Like, gotcha. okay. unfortunately, I'm understanding more now. yeah, therapists have to have something 
to tell the insurance company why you need therapy. So I think that that's one of the good things that comes out of it. I don't like the stigma around, well, it's in the DSM and therefore it's wrong, but the turmoil that one experiences is very different than the joy that one might feel for being trans. Mm -hmm. So, and also different than body uh, dysmorphia. Oh, yeah. Though I think they can be co-morbidities, right? Like you can... I'm that might be another topic for I'm letting you day. drive the train. <laughs> I don't know enough about it to speak on it. Yeah. Getting back to our DSM-3R, um, there was a slight change to the access system that was established. So access one is still clinical disorders could include delirium, substance use, gender and sexual identity disorders, eating disorders, and sleep disorders. Again, remember, this is like the 80s. What a time. Yeah. So rocking and rolling and whatnot. I'm also going to do some research on this after our conversation today because I haven't put this much thought into it before and I want to make sure that I'm listening to trans voices as I'm talking about this because I am a privileged cis person Mm -hmm. who um, has had the great privilege of not having to really think about this before. Mm -hmm. So I want to make sure that I'm not saying something that's anti-ally. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, Access to is personality disorders, including like paranoid personality disorder, antisocial, borderline, narcissistic, avoidant, so on and so forth. Um, Access three is general medical disorders like uh, cancer, which could be causing you to feel depressed. Mm -hmm. So looking at how all of these intersect and overlap. Access four is psychosocial and environmental factors. Like, do you have problems within your support system? Uh, social environment, educational, occupational, housing, economic, access to services. Access 5 is global assessment of functioning, and it's on a scale of 0 to 100. And it's basically like, how is the person doing overall? Mm, okay. Yeah. Can you explain that how the, the access is and, and how that, Yeah. what does that so, look like? What does that mean? Sure. So, for example, um, say someone has... The, the way that they really do it is they write it out and they say access one clinical disorder. Um, so you have a substance use disorder. Mm-hmm. Okay. Access two is borderline personality disorder. Like it's a associated with a personality disorder. Um, you may not have a medical issue that relates to either of those or at all. Mm-hmm. Um, so you access three does not apply. Access four psychosocial environmental factors like uh, maybe you don't have a support system which is helping you deal with your borderline personality disorder Mm -hmm. which is contributing to your substance use Mm, does that make sense so it's Mm -hmm. kind of a way of just looking at people and saying what are some of the big five things that might be contributing to their dissatisfaction or inability to feel you know satisfied with their lives Mm -hmm. So you could have one and two, but skip three and and four? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Or you could, you know, skip one and two, but have Lyme's disease for access three Mm -hmm. um, and then skip four. But you still have some kind of something going on in your body that's... Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yep. Yep. Okay. So the DSM-4 was published in 1994. And this one was actually based on research and comprehensive studies. Whoa, crazy concepts. It only took us 150 Coming years. Coming out the gate. Crazy <laughs> ideas. I know why there wasn't any research done before this, 
but it's just mind-blowing to me that when I was three years old is when this book came out, and it's the only one that was truly established on research. Yep, that's fucked up. Yep, (laughs) yep, that's all it is. Anything that just happened in the 90s (laughs) should scare us all. (laughs) Exactly, yeah. Um, An interesting thing to note around this time is there may have been a typo that broadened the criteria for the diagnosis of autism. Was it a comma? It was not. What was it? It was the switch between the word and and the word or for meeting criteria. Oh, so okay. like yep, that'll do it. Yeah. It just, you know, rather than having symptoms contingent upon each other, it completely. Like, so they were. So the word it reads or rather than and rather than and which is why in the 90s you saw this huge increase in people being diagnosed with autism Mm -hmm. and it's because suddenly the dsm was like yeah you can be diagnosed with autism if you have any of these or any of these okay versus previously it was this and this okay really i i think that more research needs to be done and there's a great book called neurotribes by steven silberman okay um that's about the history of autism and i highly recommend i think i'm going to do a book club episode on it at one point oh i love at it at some point basically the argument is that people you know were associating the rise in autism with vaccines or you know we're just too willy-nilly about diagnosing people with things now Mm -hmm. and really the criteria that was used is what changed Mm. um and in a lot of cases i think it helps people get access to services sure um even though are there still people who are inappropriately diagnosed with autism when something else is actually going on absolutely Mm. so we're almost at the end here the dsm-5 appeared in 2011 It did away with the access systems, although working in child welfare, like I said earlier, sometimes they still come up um, just because so many people have used it for so long. Um, I mean, it was around for like 16 years. So some of the major changes in the DSM-5 included changing the term mental retardation to intellectual developmental disorder Mm -hmm. or intellectual disability. Uh, The diagnosis of Asperger's has been removed and is now high-functioning autism or HFA. ADD has been removed and is now under ADHD with the differentiation between um, being inattentive, hyperactive, or combined type. Interesting. I didn't know that one. Yeah. So um, now what was previously thought of as being ADD is actually inattentive ADHD. Okay. So you don't have the hyperactivity portion to it. There was also information added about ADHD across a lifespan. Like previously it was an issue for kids because they couldn't focus in schools, which is a whole other thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And now we know that it's actually a specific way that the brain is wired that's just neurodiverse. Mm Mm-hmm. But there were lots of other changes as they relate to like schizophrenia, depressive disorders, bipolar related disorders, anxiety, OCD, lots of changes in the DSM-5. One thing I really do appreciate, and I think going back to your comment earlier about our third episode, is the more we learn, the more we are adapting Mm -hmm. and like constantly circling back. So going forward in this podcast, I'll probably start picking some specific diagnoses and doing like a little bit of a deeper dive into their history, like the application of the diagnosis. Um, but I just didn't feel like I could really do that until we talked about the history of mental health. Yeah. Yeah. So like, how did the 1840s and the questions on the census impact the development of the DSM or the language that was used. And even, yeah. even me, even here with you understanding certain concepts and just making sure that we are 
establishing our opinions and thoughts and right as opposed to you know what the the language being used now because i'm sure that things that we say now or that is considered current Mm -hmm. will be outdated and yeah problematic in the future right (laughs) absolutely and i think that that's why like i'm okay with saying i this is how I understand it now, but let me do more research. Right, absolutely. And I think that that's something we're both really good at. I think so, too. Um, mental health services. Oh, one of the other things I really wanted to point out is how mental health diagnoses have been used to suppress and really control people um, and how they're still highly stigmatized in many communities and access to affordable mental health services are difficult to navigate. Mm-hmm. Um I mean, for me, I'm fortunate enough to have the insurance time and accessibility during a pandemic to see a therapist, but I'm lucky as hell. Like, Mm -hmm. I know so many people who aren't, and not just for the reasons we just mentioned, but also historical cultural issues. Mm -hmm. But that's a brief synopsis (laughs) of mental illness in the DSM. Wow, that's a heavy one. Yeah, yeah. We've done a few light, fun ones recently, so I figured this would be a good switch up for you. But also important, too. It is. And um, I was feeling really reflective about some mental health stuff recently. So it was Mm -hmm. a good kind of deep dive into how we got to where we are. Yep. I think, um, you know, discussing mental health, discussing physical health. Yeah. um, You know, even back to episode three, like I mentioned earlier, um, internal Mm -hmm. check-ins, I guess, maybe, um, is really important, especially... You know, we've all lived a very crazy year. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. um, It's really important to be discussing these things, especially now. Right. I agree. My topic's a little more lighthearted, although it could be (laughs) disturbing to some. Ooh. Mm -hmm. Okay. A little content. Do we need a content warning? What did you say? Do we need a content warning? We do not. Okay, good. There are a couple reoccurring dreams that people have that are stress dreams snakes snakes possibly spiders fish what are we going with fish is your thing (laughs) (laughs) you big weirdo um teeth falling out i've never had a reoccurring dream about my teeth that is a reoccurring stress dream that a lot of people experience uh how often have you experienced the teeth falling out dream i have never okay so i also other people for sure sure yes um but i'm going to be talking about the evolution of dentistry Oh, mm-hmm. how fun. Okay. This will fun, be fun, um, horrifying. You be the judge. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Already sick intersectionalities. All right. Let's set the scene. We are going back to 5000 BC to Mesopotamia. Okay. The Sumerians wrote a text describing a toothworm, which would have caused a lot of dental decay what we know now as cavities. Uh-huh. Um, this concept was taken very seriously. They thought that this toothworm could have been the cause of, of all of our uh, dental issues up until the 18th century. Wow. They believed in this, yes. Oh my gosh, that's such a long time. Yep. Sometimes dental providers, which were not necessarily dentists, and we'll kind of cross that bridge soon, but mm-hmm. um, they would pull on the nerves of the teeth because they thought that they were worms. <gasps> Oh, okay. <laughs> I just had to reach up to my I know. Jaw. There's going to be a Yikes. lot of that. I didn't realize how sensitive it is because a lot of people have a fear of the dentist, right? Yeah. Okay. 
I'm not one of those people. Me either. Um, but luckily, I've I've had pretty good feedback from my dentist throughout the years, and I have access to regular dental visits and mm-hmm. all that jazz. But it's a real fear that people have. And as I was writing my notes, I was like, oh, my God, like I kept reaching <laughs> up to my mouth. It's, it's really horrifying. And I and I understand it was probably the most anxiety I've had around my teeth in a long time. Wow. In 1911, a discovery was made in Slovenia in the town of Loka, which was believed as one of the first fillings, which dated back to 4000 BC. Wow. And the fillings and the teeth were actually made of beeswax. It's very interesting. That um, is interesting. I mean, mm-hmm. I can't imagine a better substitute, but I also can't imagine a worse substitute than beeswax. Well, they came up with a lot of interesting ideas, okay. which will cross that bridge. Um, in 3000 BC, the Egyptians already had dentists. They were way ahead of the game. Skulls found in 3900 BC were found to have uh, small holes drilled into their teeth. Hmm. Okay most likely to drain abscesses. They were also one of the first to develop toothpaste. And this would have made, um, would have been made of dried eggshells, myrrh, a lot of other kind of earthy textures. Okay. Opium was also used for pain management. Of course it was. <laughs> Which is fascinating. Um, and they also believe that touching the tooth, like, uh, like let's say your tooth was hurting, they would say, Touching the tooth with a dead mouse may have relieved some of the pain. Um, you want to know why? It's because your brain's suddenly so much more concerned about the dead mouse coming towards your yeah. face than it is the tooth. Uh-huh. It's um, like when someone steps on your toe so that your hand starts hurting. Right. Let's redirect this fear. Exactly. Uh, also, uh, mice a are so gross. Mouse. These are also, I mean, this is like pre-plague, but like I'm, I can never look at mice the same. <laughs> in Italy in the 8th century BC was where we first saw the first pair of false teeth or dentures. Uh, they would have been made of human or animal teeth and held together with gold wire. Greece in the 5th century BC, our boy Hippocrates wrote about uh, decaying teeth and gum disease. You know, I really hate that we had no idea how much Hippocrates was going to come up in I our know. podcast. This is actually a podcast about him. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he is... What this is episode like three or four, I think that we've talked about him. He keeps coming up. He he was apparently very intelligent. Word on the street. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he was hanging out with Plato and Socrates. So, um, the first toothbrush didn't hit the scene until the Tang Dynasty in China. This would have been made of ho- um, hog bristles. Similarly, in Japan, they would have used horsehair. Mm-hmm. Um, monks did a lot of the medical procedures in the 12th century. Um, mostly because they were some of the most educated at the time. Right. And in 1130, um, quote, a series of papal edicts prohibited monks from performing any type of surgery, bloodletting, or tooth extraction. Barbers often assisted monks in the surgical ministry because they visited monasteries to shave the heads of the monks. And the tools of the barber's trade, sharp knives and razors, were used for surgery. After the edicts, barbers assumed the monks' surgical duties, bloodletting, lancing abscesses, extracting teeth, etc. So, barbers were essentially doing a lot of the surgical aspects. So, let's say your barber was busy. Who else might do this, right? 
perhaps you could also go down to your local blacksmith to get your tooth pulled. So really, no, Wait, like a blacksmith for like a horseshoes. Uh huh. I don't know that that's who I would have trusted. I mean, maybe like there's no. Well, none of these people should be trusted. First, (laughs) basically, you're going to the people who have the tools. Right. Right. And that sucks for them. (laughs) (laughs) But we are going to be moving forward to kind of the Tudor period, the early 1400s or the 1400s to the six to the early 1600s. Um, This is when sugar became highly imported, and it became. a very status um, item. So it became a symbol of status. For example, you may serve a sweet baked good or treat after the end of a meal. So similarly to a lot of things during this time, it started out with the wealthy, then kind of trickled down to some of the, quote, lower class families. Um, but regardless, sugar was being consumed and in its raw form. So sugar would have arrived to the home in kind of like a loaf, basically like a brick. It kind of looked like a salt lick. Um, So a lot of labor was behind breaking down this large clump of like heavily densed sugar, Mm -hmm. grinding, turning it into granulated sugar like we know today would have been like very intensive, very labor intensive. Um, And so, of course, a lot of people are consuming sugar. So what goes along with that? Cavities. Cavities. The worms in your teeth. <laughs> the worms in your teethies. Um, so a lot of toothpicks were used. Tooth cloths were also used to clean your teeth. Um, they had powders and pastes. And a lot of times those included sugar or honey in them. Counterproductive. Which is not great for your teeth. I mean, we know coconut oil is good for your teeth. But sugar oh. and honey... Not so much. No. They may have used alabaster sticks or sometimes a powder, and the powder would have been made from coral, gravel, and pumice stone. I don't know that those are things you should be putting in your mouth. Those would basically strip off your enamel. So they were using (laughs) these really, really abrasive... Or they were using things with sugar in them. So it was either contributing to your cavities Mm -hmm. or stripping your cavities or stripping your teeth of enamel. enamel. So what happens when you use these really harsh chemical or harsh granulates, you strip your teeth of your enamel and then you are rinsing with these sugary things. Then the cavities have much better access to your teeth. Yeah. So super problematic. Um, One of the things I researched was kind of tooth health throughout time. And what we know is that in the Viking era, people's teeth were really, really healthy. And their diet was really bland. I mean, they were eating potatoes, starches. There wasn't sugar in their diet. So, I mean, based off of this information, it's a clear correlation between dental health, um, also physical health. That is so interesting (laughs) because, I mean, I never, I've never in my life thought about Vikings' teeth and, well, and it also um, correlates with the length of your life, too. Right. Yeah. No, you got to have those good, strong teeth and be healthy so that you can eat all the food. And fight people and shit. And yep. just like, God, stay alive. I mean, God, this is... And nibble on <laughs> They your had so ones. many other problems right now, you know? <laughs> yeah. They had something called kissing comforts. Mm. I am here for that. Sign <laughs> me up. <laughs> Which were essentially sweets. And um, the intention of these were to take away bad breath. 
However, they did nothing for your tooth decay. So again, very sugary. So they did nothing for you, but they did plenty for the people around you. Exactly. For, you know, every, all the blacksmiths and the barbers or their businesses are on the rise. And um, I'm super thankful they don't have to smell your stinky breath when you show up. <laughs> right. Um, one of the things that's super interesting to me is that um, the sugar thing was really about status. So they turned sugar into all these different non-dessert um, things. Like they would make like meat that looked like sugar or sugar that looked like meat. Hmm. They would make... Um, like candy. sugar into all kinds of different forms that looked like other foods. Interesting. And I think that was a power move. I mean, we still do that today with like, uh, what are all those like baking, t- baking uh-huh. shows where they're like, make this cake look like a piece of pizza. Yep. Yeah. But sugar is now like a dollar. <laughs> <laughs> and um, at the time, it was like this really, really um, glamorous thing. Yeah. yeah. Luxury item. Mm-hmm. So... Some intersectionality coming on up. Oh. They completed a census each year. So this was not a 10-year census, but a, a yearly census. In 1592, they began to collect data about deaths. They recorded them in categories based on cause of death. So categories included plague, rickets, mm-hmm. spotted fever, mm-hmm. consumption, drowning, fever, and yes, teeth. (laughs) I would love to find a death record for somebody and the reason of death, just say teeth. Teeth, exactly. The ambiguity of that, especially in 2021, is so funny. Yeah, there were a lot more. Also, like how miserable. Oh my God, like tooth pain is the worst. It's it's undescribable, it really is. I keep thinking about Castaway. I mean, mm-hmm. your tooth you... hurts enough, you, like, shove an ice skate in your mouth. Yeah. You yeah. know what I mean? Um, but those were not the only categories. Those were just some of the ones I found the most interesting. Um, but, for example, I saw that, um, I saw the actual documentation. It was by week. Okay? Mm-hmm. So, plague, for example, had 388 deaths that week. So, this is the 15-somethings? Is this the bubonic plague? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And teeth had 113. Wow. So a third. Mm-hmm. So you think, I mean, the plague wiped out 50% of the population. In Europe. In Europe. Yeah. <laughs> so um, teeth obviously is coming in a third of that. <laughs> wow. It's coming in hot. <laughs> coming in hot. <laughs> um, so how can you die from bad teeth? Uh, lots of avoiding the dentist. Right. And the answer is pretty gross. So let's say you have a lot of tooth decay happening, okay? Mm -hmm. So it's also affecting maybe the bone of your teeth. This might cause an abscess. Um, This can then, like the abscess can then drain into your mouth. I'm so glad we ate before this. (laughs) (laughs) Which then would most likely be swallowed, okay? Uh -uh. And then ultimately you're ingesting poison, okay? Okay, hang on. <laughs> she as she takes a drink. <laughs> huh. All right, go Cheers ahead. Cheers to tooth decay. Um, <laughs> so it can also get into your bloodstream. Oh, mm-hmm. I mean that makes sense. Uh, sepsis mm-hmm. and other the root of the tooth. 
Right. Um, so, and that can cause major damage internally. So think about at the time, um, people are kind of SOL because sugar is affecting their, um, bodies, their, their mm-hmm. hearts, mm-hmm. um, in different ways. And then their tooth decay is also maybe harming their heart valves, right. other, other, places. other bacteria mm-hmm. that's now on their skin, infections in their blood. It is not ideal. It Aren't sounds... you glad you came today to discuss this? <laughs> <laughs> we really picked two uppers. <laughs> um, but I think it's super interesting. I think it's like that weird part of our brains that is intrigued by undesirable outcomes for other people. Uh, Schadenfreude. Yeah, darling. Schadenfreude is the German word for taking pleasure in someone else's misery. Mm. Um, not that I'm taking any pleasure in this, but... Nope. I'm gagging. Yeah, not fun. Without antibiotics, which is the weirdest way I've ever pronounced it. <laughs> antibiotics. That would be a great burlesque name. <laughs> yes, it would. It would be a great burlesque name. Uh, antibiotics. Um, the only option at the time was to pull your teeth out. Pull that shit out. Get them gone. Bye bye. Um, so they used forceps, and the pelican was one of the most common extraction tools, which I will put up on the Instagram. But the dental pelican was invented in the 14th century and was often made by the village blacksmiths, needing little skill to use and often caused terrible damage to the teeth. And, of course, a lot of pain. So it had kind of a tendency to crack the tooth. And when you crack the teeth, it's less likely that you're going to be able to get it all out. Right. So we right. know that, you know, when people get their wisdom teeth out, was your were your teeth impacted? You just want to pluck them mm-hmm. and not you have to take have them have out and it's yep. Yeah. So the pelican was replaced by the dental key in the 1700s. Which looked like, picture a wine key, the traditional wine key that looks like a uh-huh. T, uh-huh. like a corkscrew. Um, it's going to look like that, but with a more straight end instead of the spiral. Okay. okay. I think I've seen one of those. Do you remember going to Old Salem when, like as a kid on, for a school field trip or something and seeing all the old tools that they had there? Uh, I, I, I did that, but I don't remember the, the tooth. It's also very possible that I just saw something that looks like what you're describing, and I didn't know what it was for. So now these I'm... will also be on the Instagram. Perfect. We might need a whole Instagram post related to these dental tools because they are wild. <laughs> um, but it was replaced by the modern forceps in the 20th century. Okay. So the you just pulling your teeth out with all kinds of stuff. I don't love any of this. I know, but it's so It's fascinating. It's, it's so like a car accident. I can't look away, <laughs> but I don't love it. So as time goes along, we have people who are beginning to, quote, specialize in these surgeries. So in 1723, Pierre Fouchard, a French surgeon, was <laughs> credited as being the father of modern dentistry Dentistry. Uh i saw where you were going with that (laughs) he published a book called the surgeon dentist and this was one of the very first books to give directions on how to clean your teeth 
how to care for your teeth and kind of um, and how to treat common ailments related to teeth. Mm-hmm. He also, quote, introduced, I put that in parentheses because we remember back to episode three, not necessarily inve- dental prosthetics. Okay. So we heard about, um, you know, fake teeth being like put together with wire yeah he's not the one that invented this is what i'm trying to say okay but he's he's taking taking credit for it yes um he was also one of the first to note that acid from the sugar was contributing to tooth decay well i mean when you narrow down all the options Mm -hmm. that one seems pretty obvious he's like wait a second wait a second you suddenly have access to this, and now we have all these issues. So weird. weird. But also, at the time, they had access to so much shit they didn't have. Right. That's that's fair. I'm the, judging too harshly. I mean, the slave trade created things for Europe and surround and and even the United States um, at such a, a cheap price. Right. Everything was affordable. Right. Yeah. So there was a huge influx of products going out. Just worldwide dentures became more popular during this time depending on your situation it may have been less painful to extract all of your teeth okay so those are your options either live in pain forever or pull all your teeth out and then get dentures and then get really uncomfortable dentures which totally sucked that's a direct quote from (laughs) somebody i'm sure and uh that were I mean, we're going to talk about what types of dentures were available. We sure are. Okay, great. Good. There's a really common theme. Um, Ivory dentures were the most popular. And also pretty problematic. Oh, for sure. Not only are we talking about, um, like, elephant ivory, we're talking about um, hippopotamus. Hippopotamus? Yeah. Really? Just all the babies. It sucks. Um, But the next... Possibly worse, possibly not, um, is human teeth. That's so I remember being in like kindergarten and learning that George Washington had fake teeth, Mm -hmm. but I was told that they were wooden teeth. They were not. And they were not. They were not. And I've learned that since then, Mm -hmm. but I mean, it goes back to whitewashing history, right? Like, well, wooden teeth is also like less, it's more palatable for, uh, children. Okay, sure. But I mean, well, and they did use wood. They did try a lot of different things. Okay. But he still used human teeth. He used human teeth. Like the teeth of slaves. Well, so my next point is how or where did we get these teeth? Okay. Did I jump the gun for you? I'm so sorry. That's okay. We'll have you do 10 Hail Marys and drink three Bloody Marys and that will be your <laughs> penance. Um, <laughs> Done. <laughs> sometimes um, healthy uh, teeth owners, havers... Uh-huh. Um, would sell their teeth. If they needed, like, the money? If they needed the money. So similarly to, like, I was about to say pretty women, little women, <laughs> when they sold their hair. Yeah. I mean, if you've got healthy teeth and you really need the money, you can sell your healthy teeth. Or, like, Gift of the Magi, where the woman sells her hair to get a chain for her husband's watch, and he sells his watch to get a comb for her hair. Oh, Oftentimes, in the majority of times, these were sourced from battlegrounds and graveyards. All right. History isn't pretty. None of the research I did involved um, using the teeth of of slaves or anything like that. Oh, that's good to hear, I guess. But um, they were mostly either donated or pulled from from people who were already dead. Exactly. I guess that's 
more palatable than what I was imagining. Yeah. I it, it sounds better to me. I mean, there was a lot of um, I mean, there was a lot of death at the time. Right. So kind of like an organ donation situation. They're like, I'm sure this person won't mind. Yeah. It's not like we're still in ancient Egypt and you've got to have all of your pieces in a jar. Right. Also, they were way ahead of all this. So my next quote, which we've already talked about, is it's very highly likely that George Washington's teeth were not made of wood, but most likely animal and human teeth put together with wire which would have been very uncomfortable. It just, it cannot be comfortable. No. Like thinking about the roots of teeth. I mean. Yeah. Yikes. Um, porcelain dentures then replaced all the others. And at the time, these had a tendency to crack. However, we use porcelain now, but of a different kind. Right. And we also use resin composite materials now for veneers, which is the most popular of the yeah. denture equivalent. Um, and this is when it's um, permanently sealed to your actual teeth. So your tooth is rooted to your mouth. Oh, okay. Sometimes. They can do it either two ways where they, they extract your teeth and they drill into your bone. Or they can put it like a cap around your tooth. Okay. Thank you for explaining that to me. I've always been curious, but never curious enough to actually do the research and figure it out myself. My sister-in-law is a... Um, works in a dentist office so Stephanie, so you have the inside scoop let me here. know if i said that <laughs> um in 1840 the very first dental college was opened and it was the baltimore college of dental surgery oh surprisingly alabama was the first state to lead the way in dental regulation by enacting the first dental practices act in 1841 i mean Ideally, those would have happened in the same place, but sure, so long as we're all getting there. <laughs> right. um, it was a year later. Um, Colgate mass produced the first toothpaste in 1873, and toothbrushes followed a few years later. The first African American to earn a dental degree was in 1869, and the first female dental assistant was employed in New Orleans in 1885. Mm hmm. Quote, most Americans did not adopt a good brushing habits until after World War One. There's some intersectionality there. Yeah. When soldiers stationed abroad brought the concepts of goods and oral health back to the United States. So the idea of oral hygiene being a new thing is relatively correct. Um, I think everybody was just trying to figure out what was right and understanding that health practices, um, which we take for granted every day, were not always so obvious. And that's my story. I'm still taking <laughs> notes. Excellent job. Um, I feel like I have learned so much from you today. Oh. Um, and I cannot wait to see these pictures. Like, I'm going to need the inside scoop before we start posting things on Instagram. Like, before we leave today, I'm going to want to see these pictures. Just, like, envision your worst nightmare, and that's what it looks like. And I suddenly have a new fear of the dentist. I get it now. <laughs> what all these people have been talking about for all these years. Everybody needs to be sure to floss. Yep. And if you have dreams of your teeth falling out, it's time you go to the dentist. Well, it's time you slow down. Take a chill pill because oh, is that it's stress-induced. Oh, okay. Yes. Um, still probably a good idea to go to the dentist. <laughs> As much as you can. You want oh, to pause before we do intersectionality? Really quickly, before we do intersectionality, um, I had this really interesting conversation recently with a, um, a person I'm working with who 
asked me if I remembered the pink tablets that you would get at school when you were like in elementary school and you would have to chew them up and they turned your plaque pink. Huh. And then you did a fluoride swish. Do you remember this? No, that never happened to me. Really? Did that happen to you? It did. So huh. what, what? Wait, what grade would this have been? I mean, this was every year from kindergarten through at least fourth or fifth grade, I think. Oh. But it was so embarrassing because you would take this pink <laughs> tablet and suddenly your whole mouth would be pink because mm-hmm. you've been at school for a solid like few hours sure. before you get this. And you're nasty. And then everyone remembers whether or not you were a person who'd brushed your teeth and eaten for the day. <laughs> but it was... I I think, and maybe I'm wrong about this, but I think it's because, like, it was a small, rural, not affluent community. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering if the impact of that was that, like, they weren't expecting our teeth outcomes to be good. So they were trying to figure out how to get us more fluoride and teach more about brushing. But it's so interesting because he is, the person I was talking to is, like, in his 50s. And he remembered doing it. He still has flashbacks. He, I mean, it's traumatic. Um, That's so interesting. No, I went to elementary school in Delaware. So, okay. like, we had a first and second grade class that was combined. Mm-hmm. And I don't remember. I don't. I don't know that we did that. You may not have. Um, I was just curious. Thing. Yeah. I'll have to do some research on it. That's interesting. It's like shameful and also really effective. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) It's a combo. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think the first intersectionality that I wrote down in the very middle Uh um, and probably our most surface level one is the census and the impact of the census Mm -hmm. on how we uh, process information historically and currently. Mm Mm-hmm. Which is really interesting, especially given it's two very different censuses. Like yours was a yearly census and mine was a 10-year, like, U.S. census. I think that the census that they were doing was done on a weekly basis to be compiled for a yearly. Gotcha. Overall census. Right. It was an ongoing record, like an ongoing death record. They started keeping records, right? Okay. Because there was so much death going on because it was right. so terrible to live well in these times. <laughs> Still relatable. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> No, I don't know. Have you, has anybody ever asked you like if you could live in any other time? Like what time would oh, you live absolutely. in? And I always say, no, I'm not living in any other fucking time because I can vote and I can get a coronavirus vaccine and like, no. (laughs) I would love to visit another time, but I want to come back to my dentist afterwards. Yeah, exactly. Um, Speaking like real quick aside here. um, And maybe this is one of the intersectionalities like, and it's not something that you touched on specifically, but knowing that access to services, mental health or physical health like dentistry mm-hmm. is inaccessible or has not always been super accessible for certain populations. Oh, yeah. Which is just an interesting topic altogether. And we might come back to that in a second. But um, for the first time in my life, I'm going to a dentist that the office is all female mm-hmm. and all women of color. Oh, I love that. Which is so cool. Um, And it wasn't something I'd ever even thought about until Mm -hmm. I needed a new dentist. And this one just popped up as being highly recommended. Mm -hmm. So I'd always only ever gone to white man. Yep. I think that's a 
predominant figure in, in most industries. Right. And I think it's important to actively choose other kinds of, of diversity in um, yeah. business. Yeah, I agree. And I think that it's interesting because, I mean, who has historically had access to education and has had access to um, research or the ability to even do the research, mm -hmm. um, it's been white men. So, of course, they've been ahead of the game because they've had access to knowledge and information well, for generations that mm -hmm. women and people of color have not had. And my time period is very Europe kind of focused 18th century. So the majority of the population is is white Right. And it's it's more of a classist situation. So the the lower class people were having to still go to these like the bar like your barber to like cut your teeth out. Are you kidding me? Well, I mean, they were going to the barber for bloodletting with headaches mm -hmm. and all sorts of other things, too. Like the barber, the the field of being a barber has really <laughs> whittled down to just doing yeah. hair. But that's relatively new still. Oh, God. How horrible is that? Another thing I have is that we do discuss similar time periods. Yeah, we do. So speaking of certain time periods, you mentioned World War One, I, I believe, and how that impacted dental practices. Mine was World War Two. Oh, mine was World War Two as well. I don't know why I heard World War One. Yeah, yes, World War Two. There we go. Intersectionality. World War Two. What's going on? <laughs> yeah. So I think that, um, and again, it goes back to having resources available to people in places of privilege, and vets have experienced horrific things. Like I don't want to. Uh, like discredit discredit their mental health experiences or the physical experiences that they've had, but coming back from World War II, things obviously changed pretty drastically in the fields mm -hmm. of mental health and physical health. Yeah, so and continued to evolve. I think after a lot, well, from our, I mean, we live in the U.S., so I know right. after Vietnam there was a large like. Uh, need for more mental health support for veterans as well. And there was also the, the pushback from the Vietnam War in general. Oh, absolutely. We're not talking about today, but possibly later. But what I thought was interesting about my portion from World War II was that <laughs> they had to go outside of their current, like wherever they lived to, to mm -hmm. experience more, more hygiene. That is really more, interesting. More hygienic. Yeah. And from the history portion that I discussed was non-European, like the early dental hygienic mm -hmm. uh, credit goes to... Mesopotamia and Egypt, right? Correct. Yeah. 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 So that's... And, and even uh, China and Japan. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think if we were to trace mental health back even further than the 1840s, I mean, people across various cultures have been treating mental health differently. Often in, you know, Christian society, there are exorcisms that are associated with mental health or just kind of putting people away or whatever else. So it's interesting, too, like how far back you trace it and what the impact of that is. Mm -hmm. People relate to and create a world based around what they already understand. Mm -hmm, so like experience. Exactly. So thinking about ancient Mesopotamia and the worms in the teeth, like imagine an apple that you are eating um, or pomegranate. I think pomegranates were probably more prevalent in Mesopotamia. I don't really know. But um, <laughs> but imagine like A the fruit. worm going in the apple, right? Like yep. that's what you see and that's what your tooth looks no like then. 
So it makes so much sense. That well, and also the think about how a cavity looks. Uh-huh. It looks like something's burrowed in. Right. Right? So, I mean, it's a natural kind of assumption. Oh, absolutely. To, to think there might be a worm or, you know, a parasite. You know, they're experiencing those things around a similar time. Yeah. I mean, people experiencing them now as well. But, yeah, I think the discovering and trying to understand why things happen, you create, you create all kinds of reality. solutions and realities. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And... But I mean, it really, that toothworm thing, I mean, that, that went from. That's going to give me nightmares tonight. It will have nothing to do with. 5,000 BC to like, what did I say? The 1800s? Yeah. yeah pretty much until our, our French uh, gentleman, gentleman, um, <laughs> wrote his little book. Which is just wild. Like it makes so much sense. And of course, when we don't have an explanation for something, we create an explanation yeah it's um, only natural so great job intersectionality job. is there lady? anything that we're forgetting intersectionality wise probably yeah yeah i'm pretty sure one thousand percent but that's okay it is <laughs> um you know if you can think of another intersectionality leave us a note i'm curious like, drop us a line shoot us an email yeah uh carrier pigeon mm-hmm. whatever you got send it our way smoke signal all of which are appreciated. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, um, all right. Well, thank you guys so much for listening. You can find us on our Instagram page at Pod Without an Odd. We really highly it. encourage you to come uh, check us out there because we're posting uh, stuff about each episode every week. You can see old pictures of us, which are just we're so hilarious. Cute. Tiny babies. We have so much fun. <laughs> um. Check out our website at podcastwithoutanaudience.com. Like Karian said, you can shoot us an email at podwithoutanaud at gmail.com. Thank you, ma'am. Um, also, we're on Patreon. You know, we are doing our best to create content every week. So anything you guys can do to support us, we very much appreciate it. Also, like, sharing, listening, downloading, all of that helps us out so much. Tell your friends about us. Tell your mom about us. Mm-hmm. Our moms really like us, so I think that that speaks well to absolutely reception of mothers out there. Tag your aunt that is always telling you about some type of historical event. Yeah. Or, um, yeah. Mm-hmm. All of all of the family, all absolutely. The family members, all the friends. Um, well, thank you guys so, so much. We really have been overwhelmed with all of the support that we've gotten throughout this whole thing. And we are super excited to keep creating content. And if you support us, blink twice. And if you're out there, keep listening. Thank you for listening to Podcast Without an Audience. Find us on social media at Pod Without an Odd. You can find us on Instagram or Facebook. Or find us on the web at podcastwithoutanaudience.com. Shoot us an email at podwithoutanaud at gmail.com. Our cover art is created by an actual angel, Ashley Acevedo. Our music is by Zach Smith and Ted Oliver. Editing by Jacob Beeson. We hope you enjoyed today's episode and all of our nerdy content. Please consider leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to us today. Oh, and check out our Patreon for exclusive content and our pasta recipe. Again, thanks, and keep listening.